can encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis. And we come to chapter 13 today. In Genesis 13, we'll read the whole chapter. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So, Genesis 13, and it's, the heading is Abraham and Lot separate. So, Genesis 13, so Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they couldn't dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will take the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other, and Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes, and look from the place where you are, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. The lifelong quest of faith on which Abraham has already embarked, receives another test in Genesis 13. And Abraham's faith receives a test in the challenge of dwelling with Lot, and then eventually separating from him. And of course the lure of the cities in the plain with their fertile fields, but with their wicked inhabitants. 
But in contrast to what we looked at last time, Genesis 12, 10 to 20, Abraham, he failed the test then. His cowardice was evident, was apparent. But in Genesis 13, Abraham passes the test with flying colours. I want you to look at four different scenes with me this morning from this passage. And the first is that the deeds of faith, the deeds of faith, always begin with worship. And if you look at the first four verses of chapter 13, we see Abram returning to the land. He's returning to the land from Egypt. Abram is returning to God. Abram's on a pilgrimage and we see him return to worship. So first of all, I want you to be reminded of this glorious, important truth. The deeds of faith always begin with worship. And you see Abraham in this passage. We're reminded in verses 1 and 2 that the Lord had blessed Abraham exceedingly. God had given Abraham livestock, great livestock. God had given Abraham silver and gold. God does often bless with an exceeding abundance his people. And God blessed Abraham. God gave him great riches. This indeed was a sign of God's blessing. Abraham was rich in livestock and in silver and in gold because of the Lord. But in this passage, the main point is that Abraham journeys through the Negev which is the wilderness area to the south of Israel, all the way back to the place where he first encamped in the land of Canaan. And he does so because he is on a religious pilgrimage. Derek Kidner says that the fact that Abraham rose to the occasion in this passage is traceable to verses 1 through 4, which presents this journey to Bethel as a pilgrimage. So Abraham is retracing the steps in reverse by which he had gone to Egypt. And he's heading back to the place where he first came into the land and where he first called on the name of the Lord. And the test in this chapter, what is to come, comes after the worship. And if if this is not proof of the means of grace which we may avail ourselves of in worship. I do not know of a good example of it. We always talk about the word read, the word prayed, the word preached. And in the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as means, as instruments, vehicles by which God conveys his favour on us. But in this passage, we see Abraham go back and avail himself of worship after a failure, after a great failure. And immediately after that worship, he meets another significant test of his faith in his own life. So we are reminded, brothers and sisters, there is no more, there is no more important preparation for spiritual conflict than public and private worship. It's, you know, the, the, the deeds of life follow the worship. And I think 
If we're honest, have, have you not found that in your own experience? As I was looking over this passage, I thought of a number of times in my life came to mind where the tests of faith are follow the, the, the worship of God. And I know many, many of you could share stories like that, where in the context of worship and praise with the Lord's people, the Lord did business with your heart. The Lord did business with your heart and prepared you for the tests of the week. Or prepared you for the tests that lay ahead. And that is exactly what God does in the life of Abraham. So I encourage you, continue to gather together for public worship, but continue your devotion to the Lord in private worship as well. The second scene I'd like you to consider with me is that God continues now the process of covenant separation. Verses 5 to 7 of Genesis 13. See, now the test is coming. First of all, we see the worship, you know, Abraham worshipping God as he calls on the name of the Lord. I don't know whether you noticed that when, 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 when it was read, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And in Genesis, whenever that is said, called upon the name of the Lord, that's a phrase for corporate worship. And it goes all the way back to Seth. When they called upon the name of their Lord, it's talking about the corporate worship of the people of God. Abraham called on the name of the Lord. But then in verses 5 to 7, we come to the second picture, and we see this strife. There's a strife between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. They're both great men. They both have a, number of, a great number of possessions. They have a lot of people in their pay, on their payroll, if you like. And they have a lot of livestock. And they have so many animals and, and people that they can't comfortably dwell in the same area. There isn't enough grazing land for the animals, for example. And this overcrowding leads to strife between Abraham's people and Lot's people. So they're in a precarious situation. And then we're told at the end of verse 7 that not only is there strife between Abraham's men and Lot's men, but they're surrounded, did you see that? It was, it's not a throwaway verse. They're surrounded by Canaanites and Perizzites, two tribes that dwelt in Canaan. And of course, if there was inter-tribal squabbling and strife going on between Abraham's men and Lot's men, that would put them in a very vulnerable position in the presence of their enemies, of, of, of a the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So Abraham and Lot agree to separate. Is it not interesting how God often use, uses apparently adverse circumstances in order to advance his cause in our souls? Often, I've often thought about that in this last year. How can there be anything good about what's happening? How can there be anything good about the virus, or how can there be anything good about lockdown? But we are reminded that God uses apparently adverse circumstances to advance his cause. So we should trust and obey. 
What had God called Abraham to do when he first called him in the covenant of grace? He called him to separate himself from his country, from his father's house, and even from his relations. Now, Abraham had done this up until this point with the exception of Lot. Lot had been travelling with him everywhere. And though it was sad there would be a division between these two kinsmen, when their people didn't get along, God's purpose was to separate Abraham from Lot so he could do business with Abraham's soul. Because it was through Abraham that the promise would come, not Lot. In fact, Lot is going to embark upon what he would no doubt regret many, many years later. So God brings this adverse circumstance into Abraham's life, not to vex Abraham, but to bless him. One commentator said the separation between Lot and Abraham formed a significant length in the chain of God's plan and purpose for Abraham. This is a testimony to God's sovereignty. Last time we said those wonderful words, which I still remember from my parents, man's extremities are God's opportunities. And that is what happens here. God brings about this separation through this strife between Abraham's and Lot's men. And the third scene is a picture of faith as confident resting in the promises of God. So 8 to 13 we are now. We've seen 1 to 4, the worship. 5 to 7 is the situation. And now 8 to 13 is the test. How will they go about deciding who goes where? How will they determine who gets what section? And Abraham rises to the occasion. We see Abraham's test in this passage. And we see Abraham trusting in the Lord. And we see Abraham's triumph by faith in verses 8 to 13. And these verses, brothers and sisters, is a picture of faith resting in God's promises. Have you learned to do that in your own heart? To confidently rest in the promises of God? Yes, we can do that for eternity. The big things, we trust him for eternal life, for, for, for being with Jesus forever. But we trust him for this life too. We trust him today and tomorrow. And look at what happens here. Abraham says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. He gives the reason why. We're brothers. We're kinsmen, Lot. Let not this come between us. Abraham has exactly the right attitude in the middle of this strife and this precarious situation. He recognises the importance of unity between the brethren. Look at what Derek Kidner says. Abraham's handling of this conflict is a model of insight, good sense and generosity. His reminder that we are brethren singled out the aspect that mattered most in the face of an alien world. And his proposal was selfless as it was practical and it resolved the immediate tension without creating any future ones. What was his proposal then? It was, you choose. <laughs> Lot, you choose. And Lot wasn't the heir to the covenant promises. But Abraham said to Lot, you choose the land you want, and I will take the leftovers. You look out there, 
You decide what you, where you want to go. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. What did I say the other way around? But you get my drift. You make the choice. And we see the nobility of Abraham's heart. We see the generosity of his heart. But we see his trust in God in allowing Lot to choose. He trusted God for the outcome. He wasn't trusting in Lot for the outcome. He was trusting in God. You see, in that heart, Abraham is a peacemaker. Peace, peacemaker. And peacemaking always involves an eagerness for peace. Look, look at what he said. Just let it resonate in your heart. Let there be no strife between you and me. Between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are brothers. And Abraham is saying that this is my desire. I do not want us to be in conflict. Is that your attitude? Whatever conflict you are having. Husband or wife. Child. Parent. Someone in the church. Someone at work. I do not want there to be strife. You know what our world loves to do? If you just spend three minutes, which is three minutes too long, on social media, social media stirs up strife. It is successful by stirring up strife. I would say even the journalists and media this year, compared to even a couple of years ago, they had to be sensational. It works by stirring up strife. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. What was the context? The Corinthians were well cheesed off. They were ticked off with Paul. They thought that he was making their life difficult and he is fickle and can't be trusted. They're really upset with him. And Paul says to people who are furious with him, our heart is wide open. I think... Of that posture in conflict, or is your heart a shriveled up, grinchy, little heart? Nothing that you could possibly ever do would convince me that you've truly repented. Nothing that you are doing will ever convince me that you can ever be trusted again. Or is your heart wide open? And that means that in situations where you've been truly wronged, and sinned against, you have a posture that invites repentance and forgiveness. That doesn't mean that every situation is really 50-50. I balk at this, don't you, sometimes? If you're absolutely convinced, this is not a 50-50, this is a 200-0 situation. You really, really, really were sinned against, and it really, really, really is not your fault. But if you have a wide-open heart, it doesn't mean that you paper over the injustice, but it means your posture is, I'm eager to forgive. And I will not seek vengeance against you. A step towards an open heart. Abraham is a peacemaker. His heart is wide open. Alternatively, the posture of your heart is folding arms. Or you turn your back. Or run in the other direction. Abraham seizes the initiative and says to Lot, let there be no strife. That's where he starts off. He starts off, let there be no strife between you and me, for we are brothers. 
And I can tell you after, I was thinking about it this last week, 20 years of pastoral ministry, this makes all the difference in the world. If you have two people and they want help, they really want to work it out. Nine times out of ten, or maybe 95 times out of a hundred, you know what? They work it out. They want to work it out, it works out. If you don't want to work it out, it probably won't. Because there is a desire, your heart is open. It's like Abraham, let there be no strife. I want, I want to make this work. But if you have two people come along and they can say all the right things, they can, they've got the gift of the gab, but if they don't want peace, 95 times out of 100, it won't go anywhere. You can give them the best books to read, the best Bible verses, the best counsel, the best advice, but if their hearts are closed, they've decided they want to be at strife. They will be at strife. And they, and they will come and find a reason to be at strife. You know, they'll, they'll pick holes in you, down to what, what toilet paper you use, or whatever it is. They will find a reason to criticise. And we see the importance of peacemaking throughout Scripture. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Proverbs 3, verse 17. Let these words just soak over you. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are peace. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you? Or Proverbs 3.29. Do not plan evil against your neighbour who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And 2 Timothy 2, see, this is, you know, I've often thought this is my life verse, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You start with a pure heart, you're peaceable, you're gentle, you don't come with guns a-blazing. You come with the softest approach possible and you get louder if you need to. You can always turn the volume up. It's harder to turn the volume down if you start off with guns a-blazing. Open to reason, full of mercy, eager to forgive if there is something to forgive. Eager to give the benefit of the doubt. Abraham. Abraham. But then Lot. But then Lot. You see, Lot's choosing of the land isn't only out of the ordinary, but it would have been against the custom of the day. He should have deferred to the elder member of the family. The elder member of the family in the time would have had the right to make the choice. Abraham cedes that right, and Lot chooses by sight. Not by faith but by sight. He sees land which looks wonderful. The description is mind-boggling. He says this land was so fertile, it was like the Garden of God. It was like the Garden of Eden. It's like Egypt towards Zohar. It was well-watered and fertile. The soil was rich. And verse 13 tells us, the land was good and the men were bad. 
You see, Lot chose by sight. He, he didn't see any dangers. He didn't choose spiritually. He didn't think, well, is this spiritually good for my family to take them there? Well, the land looks great. The people are a bit dodgy. But he reaped the consequences later on. Because he chose by sight. And it put him bang in the area of depravity. See, Abraham's choice, Abraham's faith, was that God would protect him. Whatever Lot chose. And Abraham's faith protected him from that situation. And we ourselves may defer to our brethren in this life for the sake of peace and be assured that God will take care of us anyway. This is a great passage to remind us how we might proceed in the context of family conflict deferring our own rights and trusting that God will take care of us. How many times have we had to walk that step? Many in this room. That God will take care of us. That God will take care. And we can testify, just testify that God has blessed us. That God has taken care of us. And oftentimes, God has taken care of those who chose to take their own way. That's the that's the sad reality as well. But what a way, the way of Abraham. Derek Kidner says, By faith, Abraham had renounced everything so he could afford here just to refresh. So by faith, he opted for the unseen. He had no need to judge as Lot did by sight. Abraham judged by faith and trusted that God would provide everything that he had promised. I think that is... That, that line there is, has to be our watchword, doesn't it? That has to be our line. That God will provide everything he has promised. Abraham walked by faith. Lot walked by sight. Sometimes we think of faith as something we just do at the beginning of our Christian life. You put your faith in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. But f- faith is what we have for spiritual things. It's for eternal life. But the story is not just about the lesson of faith, which is very spiritual, and the lesson of peacemaking is to try and be a good person. The two lessons are the same, because you cannot live as a peacemaker unless you are a person of faith. Do you believe God's promises? Blessed are the peacemakers. As you sow seeds of peace, God will smile on you. God is going to be true to his promise. Abraham didn't know where Lot was going to go, but he trusted God anyway. Brothers and sisters, you never risk forfeiting the blessing of God by doing the right thing. Ever. Abraham thinks in chapters 12, 10 to 20, that unless he did the wrong thing, he wouldn't be blessed. But in chapter 13, Abraham now says, I'm going to do the right thing because I have faith in the God of promise. And ultimately we know, as New Testament Christians, how sure that promise is. Because we have faith that Christ took the worst for us, so that we may inherit the promised land. Christ freely chose the worst part. He suffered, he died, he was crucified, he was condemned. So we might inherit a new Garden of Eden. We can trust in God's promises. Friends, and I know this to be true, other people will take advantage of you. 
They will take advantage of your Christian nature. They will think that you are soft and a walkover. But God will never take advantage of you. And the story reminds us, we see it again and again through Genesis, that the promises of God are more reliable than our own eyes. And our eyes are much more reliable and dependable than our senses. I encourage you to take the lesson of faith from Abraham, but be a peacemaker. Trust, do the right thing. Strive for peace. Because the God of peace sees you and he will take care of you. And the last scene, Gen- the verses 14 to 18, Revelation prompts worship. It's a wonderful scene. Here God, after Lot is separated from Abraham, God speaks to him again, confirming his promise. And the language you see in verses 14 to 17 is so similar to the language of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It's a, it's a repetition, if you like, of the blessing. Lift up your eyes, the land, your offspring, and I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise and walk. God reiterates his promise to Abraham with an emphasis on his promise that he would give Abraham the land and he would give Abraham seed. But Abraham didn't own any property in Canaan and he didn't have any seed. So God makes a promise that demands he takes God at his word. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, and it's not that the way of saving faith, God asks him, us to trust him when there is no sight. You see, Lot chose by sight. He had, he had to see. But faith, brothers and sisters, is trusting God when we have no, when we have none. And in this passage, we see Abraham continuing in the pattern of we saw in early Genesis 12. Abraham dwelt in a tent. He built the Lord a permanent altar. And we see again in verse 18, Abraham moved his tent settled by the oaks of Barmere, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. There's a wonderful line in Derek Kidner's commentary, I love it so much, tent and altar characterised Abraham's way of life. He, he was okay with a tent, but God had a place of worship. You see where his priorities are? He was a nomad, but God was his permanent refuge. That's what it's saying. And what a, what a reminder, this world is flaky, it's flakier than you, than you ever think. But God is more certain, he's more certain, God is certain. Everywhere Abraham went, the worship of God, the calling on the name of the Lord was his centre. That was his centre. However flaky it got around him, however rainy the tent got, his centre was the worship of God. Abraham had no wood on his roof, but he built an altar to the Lord while he was dwelling in a flimsy tent. And that tells us that God's revelation to us prompts us to worship him. God revealed himself. He spoke to Abraham again. What is Abraham's response? Worship. This chapter begins and ends with worship. 
It began with worship, then there is a test, then there is a trial, then there is a victory, and then it closes with worship. I love Genesis 13. It lifts up my soul because God calls us in order to worship him. There is nothing more essential than worship. There is nothing more central to the believer's life than worship. But it is interesting that the worship where we come to empty ourselves of praise and give it to God, when we come with that attitude of desiring to pour our hearts out to him, to give him the glory, to give him the praise and honour, we fetch back the blessing. Because Abraham worships in Genesis 13, 1-4, and what does God do? He gives him backbone for the test. He strengthens him for the test. God speaks to Abraham at the end of Genesis 13, and Abraham comes back to the Lord in worship. But God had already gone before his worship by favouring him with another revelation of himself. You can never outgive God. When you come to the Lord in worship, if you come with a humble attitude of desiring to ascribe unto the Lord the glory due his name, to praise him, to thank him for all that he has done, you cannot possibly outgive what you will receive from the Lord. So in this passage, we see that the deeds of faith begin with worship. Because God has called us to worship him. It's at the centre of our experience. That is why it's so perverse that men will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God made us to be worshippers. Worship is what enables us to do deeds of faith. You see men bending the knee to everything else, but you don't see them bending the knee to Jesus. And in verses then 5 to 7, we see that God brings separation. If we don't follow in the way of separating ourselves from the world, God loves us so much he will bring about that separation himself. Whereas God, Abraham, had not separated himself from his family entirely, God gave him a little nudge. God helped him out a bit because he had dealings that he needed to do with Abraham. And then in verses 8 to 13, we see the trust, the trust in the Lord God. And finally, we see God speaking to Abraham and Abraham responding in worship. What an encouragement for us in our walk of faith. And in each of these four patterns, we see patterns that remain in the new covenant, except they're greater because we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in his modelling of faith, but in dying on our behalf. So we're called to worship the risen Christ. It is our first priority. Everything in the Christian church culminates in worshipping him. And from that worship, every strength of the Christian life flows. God still calls us to separate. Is it not interesting that God's call to Abraham is to separate and to follow. Jesus' calls to his disciples is to separate and follow. And in this passage, we see Abraham trusting in God, resting in his promises. Jesus requires that from his disciples. And finally, the revelation of God prompts worship. This is something we see throughout the New Testament. 
And I just want you, in closing, I'd like just to read from Revelation 5, because this is where this passage led me. If you remember the scene, John is carried to the throne room, and he tells us in Revelation 5, And then I saw in the right hand of him, who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. You see, that represents the unfolding of God's providence and the provision of his protection for his saints. And the sealing indicates, as it were, the frustration of that providence and protection. And so John, as he sees the book sealed, he fears that God's plans for his people will not come about unless the book is unsealed. But no one is found in heaven to open it. So John begins to sob. And one of the great scenes in Scripture, Revelation 5, verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. The response to the revelation that Jesus Christ was worthy to break the seals of the book of God's decree evoked worship from every being in heaven. God's revelation always does. Brothers and sisters, when God shows himself to us in his word, what can we do but bow the knee to him? He alone is worthy. I, catch, I, I just trust that you catch the glimpse of the risen Christ, the one who is worthy. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. I look forward to worshipping him with you around the throne. Amen.